many cultures have different models of anatomy, shockingly. Mm-hmm. Still blows my mind that we just kind of ignore it, that different cultures have different models of anatomy. We don't know what to do about it and we just ignore it. Mm-hmm. But they do. And at some point, you know, when you are treating people, especially in matters of life and death, as we call it, or birth and death more appropriately, then the, the vividness of what we are leaving on the table, you know, really stands out. So it was really in seeing that and in this shift in experience that I felt like I had to start talking about this. And how in the world do you start talking about that? You know, saying our model of anatomy is incomplete. I have right here is the Atlas of Human Anatomy. This is the book that um, all medical students use. You know, that's you, Christina, that's me, that's everybody listening. No, it's not. You know, that is a fraction of what we are. Hello and welcome to the Word for Women podcast. I'm Christina, your host, and my guests are people who operate at the intersection of science and spirituality. It is my great pleasure today to speak with Dr. Anup Kumar. Welcome to the show, Anup. Thank you, Christina. Happy to be with you. So happy for you to be here. Dear listeners, Dr. Anup Kumar is the co-founder and CEO of Health Revolution, a movement demonstrating that healing is possible when we see ourselves fully. A board-certified emergency physician holding a master's degree in management and health leadership, Dr. Kumar is also a public speaker and author of Michelangelo's Medicine and Is This a Dream?, creator of the Health Jumpstart program and host of the Healing is Possible podcast. At the foundation of Anup's work lies the Free Minds framework, which refers to three distinct mental configurations through which we experience ourselves and the world, and which can be used to inform solutions to real-world challenges, including healing diseases and upgrading the quality of our education. Anup developed the Free Minds framework inspired by the ancient Indian philosophy of Advaita Vedanta, which he has practiced since childhood. To listeners unfamiliar with Advaita Vedanta, you might have encountered it under the name of non-duality. And on that note, Anup, I'd love to ask you if you could start us off by describing Advaita Vedanta or non-duality to someone who has never heard of it before. We're starting off on a good note. (laughs) To someone who's never heard of it, I would say that Advaita suggests that though we are many people, we want different things, we have different paths through life, that there is one thing that everybody really wants. And Maybe that's kind of a radical statement because now it's so important in society to value diversity. You know, we're, we're, I think, starting to honor different ways, different paths, different ideas. Um, That's such a big movement happening worldwide now in society. And at the same time, Advaita says that all of these are ways to discovering something deeper, a deeper unity, let's say that underlies the world of multiplicity and the world of change and the world of diversity. And that this unity and this diversity are actually plays on each other, you know, and that our tendency to congregate or groupthink or go down one path 
is actually kind of a misrepresentation of an actual unity that is inclusive of everybody. Mm. And furthermore, Advaita says that this underlying unity is not just for a kind of people. It's not just for people. It's not just for living beings. That there is a unity that is beyond what we call living and non-living or birth and death or animate and inanimate, which are all actually degrees of perception. Though we take them often in our educational system to be fundamental ways of dividing things, Advaita says these are actually ways of perceiving. And depending on the sensitivity of the instruments we use, we perceive these apparent dichotomies differently. So this unity is something that is not just reserved for one class of people, nor people, nor living beings, but it is inclusive of everything, that which we call universe. And furthermore, the third point is that because it is so all-encompassing and all-pervasive, this is you and this is me. So it is not something distant. It's not something abstract. It's not something other than. It is supremely intimate. Mm. And what is often spoken about in terms of being within ourselves, which is a compromise in language. It's not so much within ourselves, but it is what we are. And so Advaita goes down these bold steps of saying there is an underlying unity. It's not just for one person or another person or even people or living beings. And most importantly, this is you, this is me. And therefore, the final point, this is experienceable as your life. And when that happens, everything changes. All the stories we subscribe to change. Our experience of what we are, not just who we are, but what we are changes. Our experience of perception, how we perceive what we perceive changes. Our experiences of thought and how we communicate and express changes. Our experiences of what we call birth and life and death changes, and so on. Everything changes. This is Advaita in a nutshell. How did things change for you in particular in practice Advaita Vedanta? What changes in perception did you encounter and what concrete impact did they have on your life? Changes in perception. So what changed for me primarily at the core of it is really the sense of identity. And that's how the Three three Minds framework was born, because I was looking for a way of how in the world do I express this to the people that I speak to on a day-to-day basis. So that's fundamental. And I don't think I can say enough about that to describe how significant a change is the change in identity not just from one character to another, one role from another, but what we are fundamentally, constitutionally. Perceptually, the change is a widening of perception, right? On It's as if the way we are taught, just culturally, both implicitly and explicitly in our culture, the way we're taught to see is through the peephole. You know, like when somebody comes to the door and knocks, you look through the hole and you say, oh, who's that? Oh, okay, I see you. But you can see like this darkness on both sides, right? Where you can only see like, uh, what is it? Three feet, uh, three feet span of, sp- of space. Mm. Um, and it's something like that. This opens up what we call space and time are frames of experience. 
and there are many frames of experience. And so perception opens up both in terms of breadth across space-time frames, but also in terms of depth, in terms of what we are looking at, what we call a hand, what we call a camera. The, the depth of that vision also changes. Uh, and that is part and parcel with identity because our presumption initially, our hypothesis that we have to test is that what I am perhaps is not just this body or what I am perhaps is not just this personality. And if I really ask that, then I have to ask then what is this hand? What is this camera? And all of that starts to converge. Let's talk a little more about this idea that what I am is not just this body or not just this mind. As an emergency physician, you educate um, on how the model of human anatomy taught in medical schools is radically incomplete. Um, how does this tie in back to the philosophy of Advaita Vedanta? And maybe to also tell us a little bit about how you came to realize it. Um, is this something you learned in med school? Is this something you learned later on earlier? How did it happen? So I had been around people studying this, experimenting with this, dedicating their lives to this since I was a kid. And at some point there was a change in the experience of identity itself and perception. And that's when it kind of, everything kind of reformulated. And, and out of that and a need to communicate came, as I said, the three minds framework. So it comes to a point where the way we're experiencing things or the way I was experiencing things was not consistent with what is the highest authority in the land apparently, right? So what we were taught in medical school about human anatomy, for example. And I'm sure every culture says this. In fact, many cultures have different models of anatomy, shockingly. Mm -hmm. Still blows my mind that we just kind of ignore it, that different cultures have different models of anatomy. We don't know what to do about it and we just ignore it, mm -hmm. but they do. And at some point, you know, when you are treating people, especially in matters of life and death, as we call it, or birth and death more appropriately, then the, the vividness of what we are leaving on the table, you know, really stands out. So it was really in seeing that and in this shift in experience that I felt like I had to start talking about this and how in the world do you start talking about that? You know, saying our model of anatomy is incomplete. I have right here is the Atlas of Human Anatomy. This is the book that um, all medical students use. You know, that's you, Christina, that's me, that's everybody listening. No, it's not. You know, that is a fraction of what we are. And frankly, that's dangerous. It's dangerous to have a methodology that's extremely honored and respected and to say, this is what this person is. Um, now, everybody knows that, look, this doesn't cover all fields. Yes, there's something called maybe wellness or maybe there's something called philosophy and spirituality. We may know that privately, but that's not what we practice in society, in the hospital. You know, I mean, we're dealing with life and death, as we call it in the hospital, but we're not practicing that breadth of vision. Mm -hmm. And that's dangerous because what we do is we model a human being as this kind of machine-like structure. So when the experience changed and that kind of became vivid and practical, that's when I said, okay, I have to start talking about it. And now in, in the model that I use, this entire atlas is one-fifth of the human being. Mm. That's being generous. The entire model of human anatomy that we use is one-fifth of five different bodies. That's a pretty bold statement. And uh, it makes me believe that it's not always 
easy to to be outspoken about this and i love what you said about how your personal experience was clashing with this external knowledge that you got about the human body um and i think that's a very important point to make because i think every human being at one point has an inner experience that doesn't quite agree with what they should be feeling or what they think the truth should be um in speaking about these things especially as a medical professional were there ever tensions conflicts and if so how did you navigate them yeah so when i first started especially when i wrote the first book michelangelo's medicine is probably when i felt it the most as i was putting my words down on paper and there's actually a chapter in there that's titled dear clinician where i'm writing to my fellow colleagues and it's it's a very sensitive area you know because people have dedicated so much time so much effort you know made many sacrifices in many cases to be in that position to go through medical school and and be a physician and treat and um it can be hard to look at the fact that we know in some ways in some ways we know a lot but we know a lot about a little that's mm-hmm. that's the part to understand we know a whole lot there's a tremendous volume of information but even that is a fraction of the entire human being and i think almost all physicians will acknowledge that but the next step is can we make that explicit that's an entirely different ball game to make it explicit is a different ball game and that's what was difficult for me is because i was making it explicit everybody kind of knows this you know within themselves or in private conversations casual but can you make it explicit can you give it a framework can you create a program can you create education that's an entirely different ball game so i experienced that as i was writing this dear clinician chapter and i was trying to be sensitive to what i've been through what my colleagues have been through what i felt like i had to say what i felt like our patients needed to hear you know they needed to hear a physician saying this so that was difficult but you know as i did that so many physicians started to contact me and medical students especially almost like exhaling mm. okay and you know very few of them would speak publicly about it but privately i've spoken to so many people um about how to integrate this view isn't it at odds with what we learned how can we be true to both you know all of these questions start to come up and it's incredibly fulfilling to do that work why do you think more physicians are open about their actual beliefs if they sense that the model of human anatomy is incomplete it's the sense of identity you know our expertise is rooted in the biomedical view and the biomedical view is rooted in the physicalist view right so um what did we all learn as kids at least here in the united states i think probably around the world you played with the little uh, ball and sticks atoms right atoms and molecules put the sticks together and the balls together and you get a molecule and then you create h2o and you can put all of them together and see how they work how they come together right the idea is that's what we're made of this is the implicit teaching you put those together and you get a macromolecule you put those together and you get a cell you put them together and you get tissues right and then you get organs then you get organ systems and then guess what we get you no then we get a physicalist model of the body which is different which is an, which is a part of what you are but not you in its entirety right so i think 
when you're trained in that, and this is not just training as doctors, this is pretty much everybody who's listening. Everybody gets this training implicitly that this is what we're made of in school, right? By like the formal authorities. And when you get that training and then you further specialize in that, which is what medical school is, right? You further specialize in philosophy without ever being told that you are being a philosopher. And you start to believe that science, right? Because science has so much power as a word, it indicates truth, it indicates objectivity, it indicates the pursuit of what is good and what is helpful, what is honest, right? All these good values are imbued into this word science. And yet we don't realize we're practicing philosophy because of what we're excluding and what we're including. And you become your expertise is, and then you get your MD, which kind of like emblazons that authority of science as philosophy or philosophy as science. And now when you come to something where you have to question that foundation that started when you were five years old or six years old, actually it started when you were one or two years old, when our parents said, this is your nose, this is your mouth, this is your shoulder, this is... and then they clapped for us when, when we got it right, right? They never said, this is joy, right? Mm -hmm. This is curiosity. This is consideration. Right? Yeah, this idea of, but you know, the when I hear this, uh, I can't think, but you know, well, I, I, I can see my hand, right? It's, it's, it's something that's in front of me. And that's part of the implicit philosophy that, you know, we're, we're being educated in, like the things that I see are real, the things that I don't see. Mm. We know that joy is real, but we can't really pinpoint it. But then you get to other types of concepts, such as what you're describing, this idea of unity. And that, I feel we can't really put our finger on, at least not in a culture that sees things as very different as I am me, you are you, and you know, everything is separate. And did you ever get questions like, okay, um, Anup, you have this framework, and we will talk about the Free Minds framework in particular, but for now, it suffices to say it's based on the philosophy of Advaita Vedanta. Um, so if, if, if it is based on this philosophy that talks about the nature of reality, of unity, that we can't quite see or perceive, at least not from this level of perception, like you were talking earlier, um, then... Do you ever get people approaching you saying, okay, Anu, but what is the actual evidence for this? Because I can, you know, I can come with my philosophy, someone else comes with their philosophy, but where's the concrete evidence? And in saying this, I'm aware there's the implicit philosophy of physicalism behind it. But do you ever get that question? And if so, how do you address it? Oh, yeah. So let me address what you said earlier about how the unity maybe is not so real. At least joy, we kind of, we can feel it's real. So it's there, but maybe not as real as the hand. So the reason that unity is considered abstract, for example, is because things like joy, frustration, anger, sadness, ecstasy, these are not as focused on because those are experiential pathways to where they come from, which is unity. See, even what we call the hand, which we consider objective, exists in everybody's subjective perception. Right? There's no denying this. Nobody has known a hand as something purely objective. It exists in subjective perception. Mm -hmm. And so 
there are other things that exist in what we call subjective perception or just perception, which include what we call feelings, right? And just like there's a step from what we call objects, which are more shared in perception to feelings, which are less shared, just like that, we take a step back from that and we get to things that are more along the lines of unity. So it's simply a, a gradient of awareness and a gradient of sensitivity. So it's not that unity is something different. It is unity that is expressing as the emotions, as joy. And joy is one word. How many shades of joy are there? Mm. Right? So just like there's a hand, but if you take 10 people, we'll be able to show you the difference between all 10 hands. If you take 100 people and you look closely, we'll see the difference in every single hand. But we also know that's one hand, right? And it's just like that. Joy, a million shades of joy. <laughs> you know? And then what comes before that? It's all a matter of sensitivity and the fineness of perception. So when people say, well, you know, this, what's, the, what's the evidence for this? This is what I talk about, that anytime you know something, there are at least two aspects of it, and that is what you are aware of, and there is your awareness that lets you know what that is. And the simple example is if you're in a dark room, there might be all kinds of things there, but your vision is not adapted to see this. A cat's vision might be, right? So then we need an instrument, which we call a light bulb, which we flip the switch, and the instrument helps us to see this more clearly. So it is through this, and this is true for anything, the most apparently objective thing in the world is almost in, at least 50% subjective because different people see it differently, different creatures see it differently, their nervous systems are different. So who's to say what a tree actually looks like? We can only say from my perspective, or at best we can extrapolate from a human's perspective or further extrapolate from maybe a cat's perspective, who knows if we'd be right or not. But the point is what we consider tree, that objective thing out there, is necessarily dependent upon the systems that interact with it, whatever that it is to perceive, mm. right? So, I mean, this is a simply a rational argument to open up space to say, huh, sounds crazy, but what if there is this entire world behind this veil of what we call subjective, that actually influences and impinges even on the objective and what we call objective world. That's one. And the second thing is, you don't have to believe it. I don't think people should believe it. I think take it as a hypothesis. That's the whole point. Take this as a hypothesis that there is something experienceable and that will fundamentally alter the way a person is oriented to themselves and the world. And then go about experimenting with the practices that might facilitate that or that would cause you to throw out that hypothesis. Mm. Um, I, I love the, um, the fact that you brought up the, um, that objectivity is not necessarily objective and how our very, very perception necessarily imposes subjectivity upon anything. So truly, we don't really know the world as it is. Uh, assuming there's an objective world to speak of, which is an assumption in itself. Yeah. Uh, but we, we we see it through whatever we can see it, like you were saying, like through a keyhole. And it, when you talk about the model of human anatomy, it sounds like it's looking at the human being through that keyhole. Like, yes, that is true. And also there's all these other dark areas that are also true, but because of this specific way of perceiving 
the human being, then we can also see, we can only see that. Um, and I think this is a good point because you brought up perception. And I feel at this point, it's, it's a topic that really requires one to actually sit down and reflect on the fact that, you know, perception does color things to people. Well, we can all agree that two people don't perceive the same thing in the same way. But I think the moment we start touching on scientific objectivity, so-called scientific objectivity, then things start to get a little bit more tense because um, if we can't know anything objectively, what do we even truly <laughs> know? And I feel this is a good point at which to go into your free minds framework because um, it ties into everything you do. So let's walk us through it and let's go from there. Yeah. Yeah. So I would first say that it's, it's not that we can't know anything objectively. It's that we don't know what the words subjective and objective mean. Mm. That's what I think. Is that we have such narrow frames of experiencing what these words mean that they seem to be opposites and they're not because one never exists without the other. There's no such thing as objectivity without subjectivity and, mm. and vice versa. Um, so the three minds framework basically came from um, a kind of a change in experience and then wondering, how can I communicate this to basically anyone who is who is actually interested and who wants to know? Because I was I was kind of playing in a few different fields, obviously in health, healthcare, spirituality, obviously philosophy, um, but also most practically daily life, right? Like I'm still living my life as a father, as a husband, as an ER doc, you know, as a guy who's moving around doing stuff, playing basketball, etc. And I didn't want something that divested itself from, let's say, the plainness or the obviousness or the intimacy and reality and importance of everyday life, of sitting here on this chair. In fact, I think that's the most important aspect of experience, mm. is whatever you are doing right now, whoever's listening, whatever you're doing right now is the most pregnant aspect of your experience. And it has to be honored and accounted for and fully unfurled if anything is going to make sense, if any philosophy or framework is going to make sense. So th that's, that's where this came from. And the way I experienced it was a little bit different than the way I'd heard it talked about or the different frameworks that I had learned. So that's why the Three Minds Framework. So what is it? It basically says that what we call the universe or world or reality or whatever we want to call it, whatever this is, can be experienced from three different perspectives that are equally real. Now, importantly and dangerously, this framework throws out um, words like reality, real, illusion, hallucination, they're all gone. There's no need for such words. What we experience is what we experience. We honor our experiences, plain and simple. The question is, which are the most useful, which are most the most relevant for the ones at hand? Which ones do we choose? Which ones help us? Which ones don't help us? Those are the important questions. I, I'm not, I don't have a hold on reality or somebody else's reality or anything like that. So those words are gone. And what this says is, whatever this is, can be experienced at three different levels that offer three radical Different, radically different perspectives, ideas, actions, identities that express. 
All right. So the first mind view, first mind, second mind, third mind, the first mind view is the dominant view in the world. It's the popular culture. It's in all educational systems. It's most of all scientific knowledge. And basically the first mind view is the experience of localized identity. All right. So the first mind view says what I am is this particular thing, this, and it's a very particular thing defined by a boundary. So one way we can see the three minds framework, it is a framework that centers on the importance of boundary as the differentiating factor in experience. So what might a person say? I am this, I am this person, I am this body, or I am this personality, Anoop, that's speaking in English and talking about philosophy and stuff like this, right? Or I am this character, or I am this emotion. I feel angry. I feel, oh, I feel amazing, right? Whatever, whatever it is, I am this. That particularity that comes from a sense of boundary is the first mind view. Now, in our culture, it's very body-centric, right? It's body-centric, and also there's a lot of fear-based, like fear is a dominant emotion as well. Body and fear are two dominant things in this culture, and a lot of advertising is based on that. What the Three Minds Framework says that is that in this localized identity of the first mind perspective, when we don this boundary of localized identity and we experience ourselves as this particular thing, whether it's personality, body, whatever it is, then we also experience what we call the world as a series of things. In other words, as the, as the identity is, so it is reflected throughout because the idea of temporality and space is not fundamental. That is an interpretation. It's an expression. So when I feel that I am this, what I see is a world of this, 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 this. And I feel myself different from that. So I call all of those things that's, and I call me this. This is this and that, 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 that. So this is the fundamental fulcrum of experience in the first mind. This subject-object differentiation. And not just subject-object differentiation, subject-object multiplication. So I can have many moods, right? I can have, I can wear different clothes. The whole world, I can go to different places. There are so many things in the world. There's a ceiling, there's a floor, there's a shelf, there's a blade of grass or a million shades of blades of grass and so on. Endless, it's an endless smorgasbord. It's Pandora's box of multiplicity. And one can live forever in this world of multiplicity because it is endless. We're li literally creating new things all the time. So this is the first mind view. And what is radical about it is that it says that this is a view. This is not the world. This is a view of what we call the world or reality or whatever this is, right? That's the first mind view. The second mind view is that the sense of identity now is no longer localized as this, 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 this. So this steps outside of space and time as we know it. The idea that I or anything else is a particular thing with a boundary. This is my hand. We are taught to see this boundary, right? This is the example I always use. If you watch my videos, you see my hand coming up a lot. All right, so we are taught to see this boundary. And what I'm saying is in the first mind view, if the identity is localized, then this is all it sees because it sees a thing. It's looking for that boundary anywhere, right? As we are, so we see the world. It goes far beyond just our emotions. I'm saying fundamentally, even the things that we see are this way. But from the second mind view, that sense of identity, meaning the boundary that localizes as the first mind has started to become diffused, has started to loosen, has started to become translucent, 
And therefore, that boundary no longer defines a thing. And instead, it's kind of waves of possibility, right? No thing has a defined, distinct boundary, except when we want to measure it and say, this is, I am saying I want to measure it and know what it is. I'm adopting a first mind view, and therefore, I will experience a first mind view of the objective world, right? This is the second mind view. The sense of identity expands, the sense of boundary dissolves, the frame of seeing opens up, the frame of experiencing opens up, the brackets of what we call birth and death are no longer restrictive. They're still experienced, but they're not, experience is not restricted to these brackets. So this is the second mind view. And you can see that in, in many advanced sciences like physics or even anthropology, what we're doing is going beyond boundaries. We're going beyond lifetimes. We're going to different epics, right? We're going to, and now there's a lot of talk about other planets, um, extraterrestrial intelligence. What are we doing? We're trying to break the boundaries of either space by going to outer space, inner space, so on, or time, or even looking beyond space and time as physics is doing. Mm -hmm. All of this is simply an indication of the movement of humanity towards the second mind view. And what we're doing is creating formal frameworks of how to do that. And this is also talked about in all wisdom traditions, right? So this is the second mind view. And in the second mind view, I would say it's waves of possibility. The third mind view is simply pure potential, right? So the third mind view is non-functional in a society. It is, we can say, the, the potential nature of whatever this is prior to expression. And that's a compromise in language because it's not, time is a first mind perspective, right? But from a first mind perspective, explaining the third mind, the third mind is pure potential prior to its expression as differentiated waves of possibility and ultimately coagulated and shared perceptions that we call objects. Thank you. Dear listeners, um, we are both aware this uh, this framework is a lot to take in because it's very nuanced, it's very subtle. And um, I, before recording this interview, I did look over several of Anup's talks and one of my favorite ways in which um, in which you described the free minds framework was this idea that the first mind is, if you, if you picture an ocean, the first mind is a singular wave. Um, the second mind is the ocean itself. So it's that unity of waves, but not any wave in particular. And the third mind is what it's all made of, which is just water. Um, and I, for me, that really helped click something. So I'm saying this also if 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 it resonates with any of the listeners. Um, so what I hear then is that the first mind, um, in practical terms, it's me as Christina. I'm Christina. I'm born into this life. I have my preferences. I have my personal history, whatever is related to me, however I define me. Um, then the second mind, um, you mentioned it's it's what's talked about in all the, the ancient spiritual traditions and philosophical traditions. So it sounds like this idea, this experience that people have either spontaneously or uh, through meditation, through the use of psychedelics and so on, this idea of unity with all there is, a lessening of boundaries. Is that correct? Would that be the second mind or tapping could into be. it? It could be. It really depends on, it depends on the individual's experience, right? So some people might describe an out-of-body experience where mm. I, 
I'm kind of outside and looking in. Those are all ranges of second mind, but second mind proper is itself this lack of boundary. Mm. And so it's not whether it's within the body or outside the body, that is not, that's part of that experience. When the boundaries start to loosen, those things happen, Mm -hmm. but it's more about not having a fixed location and not having a particular, so all of those can be included, but sometimes it's also possible to kind of loosen a little bit. And then it's all about out of body travel or like seeing different things. And then that still kind of gets locked into this first mind framework because it's just now another, you know, it's like I said, it's endless experiences in the first mind like that. Mm-hmm. But the second mind is, is the, the non-stickiness of that identity, no matter where it is and how it is. And that, that kind of free form, freewheeling <laughs> kind of uh, experience or identity, I would say. And so that's, that's what's unique to that. And there are all kinds of ranges to that. The second mind sounds to me like it's a very experiential concept. Like every time I try to capture it with the mind, I, I feel I, I'm only just delving into your framework as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm slowly absorbing it, but I feel I can kind of get it with the mind up to a point, but then it feels like, okay, that that's about as much as I can get with, you know, yeah. rational quote unquote, you know, thinking yeah. I have to actually feel into it. So for me, I, um, I'm trying this thing, which I started very recently, you know, I'm, I've ever since I learned of your framework now, I'm like, okay, this table is second mind. Everything that's around me is second mind. You know, I'm second mind, you know, kind of trying to remind myself in the hopes that it will prompt some experiential click. Yeah. Do you have yeah. any tips like that for people to, to, to start tapping into the second mind? So a lot of meditation is exactly about this, you know, it's about going within And it's about, meditation is really about examining the subject-object boundary, which is what the second mind really looks at, right? So in the first mind perspective, you have the subject and you have the object like this. The second mind sees both of these. Mm -hmm. The second mind is this light over here that sees the subject and sees the object. And what meditation does is it goes into this, the subjective aspect. And it says, yes, I know you're interested in the world out here and the objective aspect, But go into the subjective aspect and you will discover something new. This loop comes around about the objective aspect. You see what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. meditation says, I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds spiritual. I know it sounds like you're escaping from the world. But go into the subjective uh, aspect and it will teach you something about what you really actually want to know, which is the so-called objective world. But where that loop happens is that there's actually an escape velocity from that loop. So you think it's going around here, but it it goes around the whole thing and escapes out of that loop and now sees both the subjective and the objective, right? Mm -hmm. So meditation is a very simple practice where by going within, you kind of open progressively deeper, deeper, deeper doors of perception and identity. So that's one simple technique. Another one is um, simply inquiring into, well, Actually, I should say the whole three three minds framework is about that. For somebody who is interested in rational inquiry, particularly, if you can start to see that this sense of boundary, when this changes, my world changes. Just think about that for a second. When your identity changes, your world changes. Simple example is your dream. You take on, to the extent, in a dream, you literally take on an entirely different character and and your world is entirely different. I mean, fish can fly in that world, right? Buses can bounce along the ground safely and delightfully. 
and they're perfectly fine. The, it, the entire rules of the game, so to speak, changes when that sense of identity changes. Um, daydreaming is another example. It changes, right? Hypnosis is another example. This person experiences a change and now they can act totally differently. They would say totally differently, totally different things. So if a person can inquire into their sense of identity and say, wow, yes, uh, a different species, right? If, if I were a cat, had that nervous system, what kind of world would that be? How would I totally, my perception would be totally different. So once you start to do that, what can experientially happen if a person starts to experiment with this is that your the seat from what you look starts to come loose and it can be rattling. And that's how you know that things are trying to change is that things start to become a little unstable, right? Because some of the foundational so-called truths about what we're told about the world, about perception, about life and so on, start to come loose. Mm. So I don't have any fancy answers for that. I would say meditative inquiry. And then also just a lot of it is about narrative. And, and that's one of the things I try to do is tell a better story about what's actually going on, you know, speaking to the rational mind, because the rational mind is the guard, is the sentry, mm -hmm. right? That says, uh-uh, 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 you're not getting past this. This is what keeps me safe. This is what keeps me who I am. This is what keeps me achieving, so on and so forth, right? But if you can speak to that rational mind, as hopefully I'm doing to some extent, and say, look, if we look at this aspect of experience, this is unexplored. There are ways of going about here. Then what can happen is there can be an exhalation. And in that exhalation itself, I think a person will start to notice there's a loosening and there's a broadening. Mm. And that is the path. Is the rational mind of the first mind exclusively? So to some extent. So the three minds are not distinct, hard um, let's say, configurations, you know, they're always fluid. There's nobody who's strictly first mind, who's strictly mm. second mind, or who's strictly third mind, right? There's, there's nothing like that. It's, it's a range from the, what I call the second mind perspective includes, when we talk about waves of possibility as boundaries, that includes the first mind. That's why that's even recognized, right? Mm. So there is no distinct boundary among these three. So it is a kind of a, a fluid shifting. What changes is the range one occupies? Mm. What is the predominant range that one occupies? And how do we facilitate that? How do we create systems for that? So to recap, the first mind is very boundaried. So it's this very boundaried identity. It's like the box. And then the second mind, you kind of break out of the box. You, the, the boundaries get loose. You start, to, let's say you start to see outside of the box as well, but you can still see the box as well. You just see that the world is not just, you are not just the box. You see, and you also see what the box is, mm. actually is. It's not just, now I'm seeing, now I'm outside of the box, and now I see what's outside of the box. No, it's, oh, what I thought the box was is mm. not actually box. What box actually is, is dot, dot, dot. That is, mm. that is experienced. And along with that, of course, that, that's where the sense of boundaries starts to go away. It's not, it's not about being outside the box. It's, oh, now that I see what the box is, the in and out don't really make sense anymore. Yeah. So then I feel this is going into the practical implications because uh, our metaphorical box, which is the self, once I see what I am beyond the identity that I initially had, you were talking earlier about this loop that happens, um, you know, when, when you observe reality and how it helps you 
tapping into the second mind helps you see reality more of what reality actually is so it sounds to me like it's a clearing of the lens that you see the world through or a switching of it or do you want to talk more about that and how it looks like in in practice and in healthcare perhaps yes yes so this is part of i think so many of the movements that are honoring different cultures now, honoring indigenous cultures, mm. you know, women's rights, gay rights, like all the different movements that are happening now that honoring that are honoring diversity are actually reflections of honoring unity because we're honoring our humanity, right? Humanity in a sense is one, or we can say earth is one, or we can say universe is one, or we can say multiverse is whatever, whatever scale we want to take it. We can say, um, this is one. And when you see that, like the beauty of the diversity comes through, right? And I think that's what's happening in society now is that we're no longer tolerating those th that kind of discrimination. Because mm -hmm. when we tolerate that, then we're not actually honoring that unity anymore. We're kind of cutting something off. We're saying, no, not that. Mm -hmm. So that is a practice. That's an ongoing practice that is, I mean, I don't know if there's anything more relevant than that that is happening in the world today. You know, mm -hmm. and in healthcare, it's when I talk about anatomy, it's the same thing. We're not honoring the full diversity of the human being. You know, my model of anatomy is not correct. It's just more complete than the one we have. And ultimately, there might there will be more complete versions than that. And ultimately, mm -hmm. we perhaps will not need distinct models like that anymore. Right. So these are all like grades of development, stages of development. Mm -hmm. So in healthcare, as we sense this unity more then you know the what we call the patient doctor relationship has more depth to it honor in it power in it intimacy in it love in it capacity potential possibility all of these come to light because that that unity if it's true a hypothesis again if mm -hmm. that unity is true then it's there in that and it's even exemplified in that we say the doctor patient relationship it's so important right Mm -hmm. Yes, because we recognize that there's a coupling there. There's a deep unity there. And then within that patient, let's let's shift the scale of unity to the person, to the individual, the person. How fully are we seeing the unity of this person? Mm -hmm. Oh, actually, we're just kind of modeling their body and we're teaching about the body and the mechanics and the atomistic view. But of course, all physicians are human beings, so we bring our human perspective, but it's an untrained perspective. The trained part is the mechanistic view, and so there's that, there's that clash there. So how do we reconcile that with a more unified picture of this human being in front of us? That's where complete human anatomy comes from. Mm -hmm. you know? Or we could go, we could move endlessly, even the idea of healthcare. If you look at what's happening in healthcare now, it's delocalizing. It used to be in the hospital and in the clinic. Now there are wearables. Now you can be at home. Now there's telehealth. You know, healthcare is delocalizing. Healthcare is moving from the clinic and the hospital to where you are. Where you are is where the locus of healthcare now. That's the next movement in healthcare that is already happening. So healthcare is delocalizing. It's not mm -hmm. going to be this place that you go. It's going to be a state of mind. It's going to be a way of practice. So you can see the implications of this second mind society in all of these fields. Physics, there's a lot of talk about the implications of quantum mechanics. What is quantum physics actually telling us? Quantum physics is a direct relationship or a direct reflection of three minds framework. The individualized identity is the quantum. That is what a quantum is. 
Mm. A quantum is a boundary. It's a localization. It's a quantity of something. That's what. That's how Max Planck intended it when he said, hey, energy, th the way I'm looking at this problem is not working out by the way I'm looking at energy now. Let me quantize it. Let me put it into little packets. And now, ah, when I look at it through these quantized packets, now I can make this work. It makes more sense, mm -hmm. right? And yet, we know that when we actually look at what a packet is or what a quantum is differently using a different lens, we don't always see that it has a boundary. How is that possible? How could something that has a boundary apparently delocalize and have no boundary? Mm -hmm. Well, that's easy. That, that's the frame. That's the mind that is coming. That's the mind that is being engaged, that is looking at this, that we are impregnating into our instruments and our cognitive frameworks. So in any field that you look, this three mind framework and this specifically this movement to the second mind is going to be at the forefront of that field because that's the movement happening in the world now. I think it's really interesting um, when you brought up quantum mechanics, it made me think how scientific progress, you know, like led to these very fine instruments that, you know, point to their perhaps not being such strict of a boundary as our senses from the first mind lead us to believe. And you're also saying if we are to go deeper into our identity, you know, via meditation, for example, and expand it in a way we would we, we tune our own instrument to see the same thing. Um, so we're expanding into different ways. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly it. So the more we tune our instruments, the more we realize that what we call this objective pole is simply a reflection of the configuration of the mind. Mm. Like what you see is a reflection of what you are at the most fundamental level of nature. Not just, oh, it's a bias. Uh, not just, oh, I thought it was this way. Not just like the lens that I use, but the tree in front of you, the body in front of you, the concept in front of you, the instrument in front of you. I mean, we're, we're creating a couple of thoughts come up. We're creating these instruments of perception, right? To tell us what the world is, but it's almost too obvious to say that we are creating those. Mm -hmm. So whatever we learn about the world will be limited by what we know to create, obviously, mm -hmm. right? And so we can look at them to be more objective in the sense that they have now been, they're now operating independently of our thought, apparently, but not really. Our thought is imbued in the physical structure and the, and the capacity we give to this instrument. And it cannot tell us more than that. It can only help us see what we are afraid to see. That it can tell us, right? I have a capacity to see something more and I'll, and I'll, to the extent I have courage to mechanize that and put that in a machine, it can help me see what I don't want to see, right? And that is what, that is what particle detectors are telling us and that is what experiments are telling us now right? About particles and waves and fields. We're, we're learning that through physics mm. also. Mm. But they can also only tell us to the extent of the capacity that we imbue in those instruments. Mm -hmm. So I think the more we see ourselves, the more we see what this world is. And it, it's not about, to me, I say, go more into those instruments because it's taking us there. So we can go into the objective path, which is what science does, or we can go into the subjective path, which is what spirituality does. But the truth is they both end up having to look at the other pole. Mm. And that's what physics is doing now. And that's what spirituality is doing now too, right? We're, we're having 
people connecting frameworks, you know, talking about the different sciences, talking about philosophies, it's all starting to kind of integrate now. And we're starting to see, oh, these weren't two different things. Mm-hmm. They're different approaches. And that's where that second mind view comes in, right? When we start to stand apart from this idea that, oh, there is some independent objective reality. No, mm-hmm. actually, that's just a cutoff. It's a dissociated aspect of my own experience, actually, which I mm-hmm. thought was objective. So to sum it all up, uh, because I believe this is um, making it very clear why the framework is practical. Because when I work from the first mind perspective, I, as you said, I, I see what I am. And a very simple example, like it, we don't even have to get complicated about it. Like I notice in myself, if I'm angry, if I'm anxious, if I over identify with that, let's say, I read maybe the exact same email or message. I see something completely different in it. I come back to it three hours later when I'm calmer. I see something else entirely. Um, And this is a very simple, very day-to-day example. But then when we think about how these limits in perception impose themselves over the way we investigate reality, such as through scientific inquiry, over the instruments we develop, like we can start to see why it's worth tapping into the second mind um, because from that little keyhole that you were describing as the first mind, it starts to get bigger and bigger and we start to see more of what is already there. So that is my takeaway um, for, from a practical sense from what you're um, describing through the framework. Um, and with that being said, we, we spoke of the first mind, we spoke of the second mind, um, but we haven't spoken of the third mind uh, too much. Um, and one of the curiosities that I had about it um, is, would you say that would would a, an appropriate label perhaps for the third mind be the idea of God source, however you want to call it itself, or would you define it as something else? Yeah, I think it depends on the person, the culture, the background. I don't have a problem with that God source. People can use that for the second mind. In fact, Many times it is used as that. God mm-hmm. can be considered third mind. Some people consider it a second mind. Some people consider it as a kind of first mind, a really powerful being mm-hmm. or beings. And even, for example, in the Hindu culture, there are all levels of that. There, mm-hmm. The term God can be used in different ways and different. So I think it depends on the person's interpretation. But what's mm-hmm. more important than the word is, is recognizing what is being implied and mm-hmm. that it is something very practical. Yes, I, I like I like the use of a label for it just because it I feel for me personally, perhaps for some listeners as well, it helps point, hmm. you know, the experience mm-hmm. in one mm-hmm. direction. Um, something that I feel listeners might benefit from is a clarification on what exactly are we through the lens of the second mind? Because we are so educated, so conditioned in this idea of I am my body, I begin with my body, I die with my body, and that's it. Um, but as listeners of this podcast know, you know, there, there's there's quite a few phenomena that seem to contradict that, you know, such as stories of apparent reincarnation, um, out-of-body experiences like you were mentioning, um, and so forth. Are, are these manifestations of the broadened identity uh, through the second mind lens? So these are, these are examples of what happens as boundaries loosen, 
Mm. Right. So remember, we're not saying so the three minds framework is a way of describing three distinct mental configurations, mm -hmm. but there are no hard walls between these three. Mm -hmm. So as some boundaries start to shift, the experience start to shift. Right. And actually, in our culture, many times that would be called that would be shunned or called illness. This gets into another whole conversation about what we call mental health and mental mm. illness. But those, let's say, non-typical experiences, at least, actually, I think they are typical experience. I think almost everybody experiences these, but we don't have frameworks for them. We don't have language for them. We don't have spaces for them to explore and discuss in public in non-judgmental ways. Yeah. So um, that can be, that can be started to that can be considered illness or something's wrong or supernatural or super spiritual. This person's amazing. They're, mm -hmm. they're special. You know, all of these kind of come with not being able to talk about it in a very plain way. Mm -hmm. So yes, these are experience. These are examples of boundary shifting and opening to the possibility of a second mind. Mm -hmm. Now, what I call as the second mind proper, really kind of sitting as a second mind is the sense of identity has shifted. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not, it's not so much that this identity is now experiencing new things. Oh, different worlds or different kinds of things or out of, out of this body. And now I'm something else. And th those can be part of the experiences, but the fundamental sense that, whoa, what I am is just different. It's not what people talk about, right? Except some people that are considered strange, maybe, mm. right? It's, it's not what's talked about in school. It's not considered important. In fact, it may be considered crazy, right? And that experience of what I am being the main experience, being the center of experience, so to speak, it's a non-center, mm -hmm. but linguistically being, uh, being the predominant experience, that is the second mind, that non-local nature. Mm -hmm. This is the second mind. And from that perspective, it, it's, it's not about this person had a new kind of experience. This person had, it's the very idea of this person and what this person was has shifted. And that's again, along a gradient, but that gets into some very interesting and, and big topics about mental health and mental illness that I think are hugely important to talk about. Let's talk about them then. Yeah, so this is, it's a big topic for me because one of the most stark things for me is that I feel like I'm seeing kids who are younger and younger and younger um, coming into the ER and they're on a bunch of medications and, you know, on and on and on, don't know what to do. Um, and they're looking for help and then they're getting more medications and so on. And I think uh, a lot of this comes from two things. Number one is that we don't recognize the fundamentals of health, right? We talk about them at Health Revolution. We talk about them as nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. Nutrition, and these are across these are across the body and mind. Nutrition is the food we eat, but also the information we consume. This is a nutritive conversation, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Movement is movement of the body. It's movement of emotions. Movement of creativity. Movement of the breath. Connection is connecting with ourselves, with others, with the planet. Feet in the soil, for example, and rest. Knowing how to rest the mind even while awake. And of course, rest as in sleep also. You know, these are the fundamentals of health and healing. Without this, we, we cannot expect health, whether it's mental health or physical health. is another problem that we've divided these two as if the things that create physical health will not create mental health. That's a fallacy, right? It's one and the same 
It's the same set of practices that develop both. And so what happens is when we have a society that advocates, advocates practices that are deficient in nutrition, movement, connection, and rest, which is what happens predominantly, this leads to disease, both what we call physical and what we call emotional or mental. And then from this first mind perspective of what the mind is, we have to kind of adjust this mind, which is where medications come in. Now, there's a role for medications, of course, mm -hmm. but first and foremost, we have to get our society right, what we're teaching kids, you know, what the fundamentals of health and healing are. And when you do those four things, the experience of life will naturally open up. This, these four, nutrition, movement, connection, and rest, you asked earlier about how to facilitate the second mind movement. This is what does it. These are the mechanics. They're timeless. And the mind will naturally start to shift or unlock itself mm -hmm. into a more open configuration when these four are practiced. And in the absence of these four, there's no substitute. There is no substitute. We can medicate. We can do psychedelic. We can do all kinds of stuff. But these four will have to happen. Otherwise, there will be confusion or some kind of danger situation or something else will happen. These four provide the insight and the stability. So mm -hmm. in the absence of this, what's happening now, Christina, is that we have a society that says, hey, I don't recognize what's happening. I don't understand what's happening here, or I can't really do anything about it. And mm -hmm. so medication becomes like one of the first things that we reach to in many cases, right? So What's actually happening is this person is adapting to their situation because these four engines have not been taught, practiced, you know, modeled to them. And the solution is actually moving in that direction. Mm. So I think that we don't really know um, what mental illness is, nor what mental health is. Mm. I think it's, I think especially for professionals, I think it's misleading to use those terms because mind, at least in medicine, it's not our area of specialty. Mm. brain, body, atomistic view, this is the area of specialty. So I think there's a big, what's the word? There's a, there's a big conflict there that we need to tease out. And that starts with our own practice of the four engines and opening up the mind. Mm. And, and what stands um, out to me is that uh, these four engines and the work that you do through Health Revolution is precisely facilitating this, this move from the first to the second mind um, in, in in healthcare, because as you said, mental and physical health, if they're seen as separate, then yes, the, the current approach is rational, let's say, but but they're not. Um and what I hear, they're rather, you know, they're 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 rather on a continuum, or if we take the second mind perspective, they're they're in a unity, they're in a connection. Um, so then clearly what affects one affects the other and vice versa. So um thank you so much for 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 pointing that out and while we are um on the topic of healthcare one of the very topical um things right now is the fact that well we're still in a pandemic but i'm referring specifically uh at the first years of the covid-19 pandemic mm -hmm. um and i wanted to ask you if you look if we look at the measures that have been taken or just how it was tackled in general mm -hmm. um through the lens of the free minds framework how would you have seen the beginning of the pandemic being tackled through the lens of the free minds framework so the three minds framework obviously provides um it's a very comprehensive 
perspective to take. Um, and a lot of what's described about, let's say, the metaphysics of it, and especially the range of the second mind and third mind, especially the, the latter range, latter part of that range, um, is, for, is to be explored as it comes up or understood as there's deep interest in that. It's not that one has to get the whole thing. In fact, it's not really possible to understand the whole thing without mm -hmm. actually the mental configuration changing. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about is something very simple, and that is this shift from the, second, from the first to the second mind, this kind of transition state that the world is kind of going through. And that is marked by nutrition, movement, connection, rest. This is the pathway to that change, to that transformation. So very simply, look at the pandemic. How much of what has happened in COVID is in terms of the suffering that has happened, frankly, the death that has happened, how much of that is because of a lack of awareness of what actually drives health and healing? And here I am I am connecting health and healing with this movement towards the second mind, hmm. right? How much of it is connected? I would say most of it, at least 50% of it, because the entire approach was defense, defense, defense. Mm. It's like, there's this virus out there, run, hide, distance, mask, vaccine, right? It's defense, defense, defense. Defense has its role, but you can't win a championship with just defense and never playing offense, mm. right? And what was missing glaringly, but shockingly the, in, here in the United States, the CDC hardly talked about it, you know, I didn't see public health officials talking about it much, it was nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. That's what augments health. That's what increases the power of each person to heal. And by the way, every single person is healing all the time. If you're listening to this right now, you are healing from DNA changes, from scrapes, from bumps and bruises that you probably don't even know you have because they were so slight, your body's just taking care of them, right? Your, the system is so beautiful and intelligent and deep. Your body doesn't know it's a body. Your mind doesn't know it's a mind. Those are, those are our inventions. Mm. It's a system that is integrated with the environment around you, which is integrated with the sun and the moon and everything else. It's a complete system, right? How do we augment the power of the system? It's a very simple question. We don't ask this question in healthcare. And if a person followed nutrition, movement, connection, and rest, there is no doubt, there's no doubt. I mean, even within weeks to months, you can see a dramatic difference in a person's health. And if you look at the people that suffered the most and died tragically from everything that has happened and from the virus, so many had comorbid conditions, whether it's hypertension or asthma or anything else. And so many of them can be modified with these four engines. That's why we created the Health Jumpstart program. That is, that is exactly why we created, it was actually the pandemic that made me say, I cannot wait anymore. This has to happen now. It just blew my mind that to me, we were just scaring people because it's all about, when all you do is play defense, you're saying, well, I really can't do more than that. All I can do is try to push you off as far as I can. I think the intention is good, but the, the messaging, the understanding of human psychology is terrible. It's deficient, right? You have to say, yes, do all these things, but look, you can do all of this because there are many people who get this and they do well. 
And it's not about having a diagnosis or not having a diagnosis. It's just about the innate state of health that's facilitated by nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. That's when I said, I have to create this. And that's how we created the Jumpstart program, which is now live. Anybody can go and join. We're actually launching the next one on March 6th because there simply is no conversation about that. So to get back to your point, this movement from the first mind to the second mind is facilitated by the four engines. Not fancy, not complex, not terribly sexy, but you know what? It works. And it has always worked. And that is the secret pill, is that it works and it's in plain sight and we don't see it and we don't choose it, mm. right? And so that would have been my response. If I were the commission, public health commissioner or somebody else, I would say, number one, Every single person, whether it's in my city, my country, if it's in the world, the WHO should have done this, no doubt. They should have said nutrition, movement, connection, and rest, number one for everybody. And under those things, here are the things you can do. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to do every one. Choose one that you're thinking, I might want to do that. That might be kind of cool. Just choose that and start on that track. And there is no doubt. I mean, even psychologically, that feeling of I have power. I have control. I can do something. You know, that morale boost is tremendous, mm -hmm. which, which naturally leads to the other things. It snowballs. So that's what I would say. And you don't even have to talk about it in terms of the second mind, but that becomes natural when a person says, oh, let me think about this differently. Oh, I have some power. I have some agency. Oh, I have a little breathing room. Guess what's happening? The boundary is starting to, a little bit, starting to come down. In, on, at whatever scale, that boundary is starting to come down. All boundaries are ultimately reflections of the boundary of identity. Every single boundary. We talk about and we talk about how important boundaries are, right? Boundaries are important. We need to know when to say no. Yes, absolutely. We're not saying boundaries are not good, but we need to discern boundaries. And when we see that they're all reflections of this boundary, and when we start to see how to work on these boundaries, there's a lot of power that comes through. And I think we would have been, it still would have been a difficult situation. I don't know how it would have turned out. It, you know, but we had a tremendous responsibility. And to be frank, we failed in that responsibility, but that's not the end of the story. We can start now. Every single person can start now with nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. And um, we we will add the link to the Health Jumpstart program um, in the episode description. Um, it struck me what you said about the, the fact that the body is healing itself right now without without us not even realizing it um and then talking about how the mind does naturally reconfigure itself when we when when we do feel these four engines uh and it, you know it, it it sounds like two facets of the same thing uh the 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 body tends towards healing and the mind tends towards this expanse and identity but it That's does need the right fuel it does need the right fuel. And it, it doesn't mean that, the subtlety here is there, it doesn't mean that the body has to be the way a person wants it to be for healing to happen. Healing is much more than the body becoming something else, right? So we often say like, cure is we say, we go from A to B, B might be disease, and cure is like trying to go back. I wanna go back to A. I want to be the way I was five years ago, or I wanted to go back like this. I want to think the way I used to think. And now, now I'm confused, but I want to think the way I used to think. That to me is, is different from healing, which is not going from B to A, it's going from B to C, right? It's a different state. 
it's it's a different experience. It's a different understanding. It's a recontextualization mm -hmm. of what A and B were. And in that recontextualization, B may change. That body may change to something new, but it doesn't have to because it depends on the depth of that healing. It depends on what needs to happen. It depends on how deeply we see ourselves even, right? Mm -hmm. What is, how is this body being used? What is the body the vehicle for? Many of these other questions also start to come up when we talk about healing as opposed to cure, but that's the fundamental difference is cure is kind of about going back to the way things were. Healing is moving forward and there's a possibility in that. There's an uncertainty in that into what that will look like. But it always entails ease, moving into a state of ease, not that it's going to be an easy process, but moving into a state of ease. And it always entails more wholeness, a more complete picture, which is where the word healing comes from. So I think that is always the case. One who practices nutrition, movement, connection, and rest will get new insights, will start to see things differently, and they will start to see some changes in their body and their mind. It may be unexpected changes. It may not be exactly what they wanted, right? It might not be that vision of cure that they had, but there will be changes. There will be ease. There will be greater insight. I'd love for us to go into a concrete um, example and impact of this idea of shifting one's identity. In one of our former private chats, we talked a bit about this idea of a smart person identity and how it actually kind of blocks us uh, from actually seeing the world as it is. Would you like to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I think, I think for every person, there's something that we are hung up on or we define ourselves by, right? And the question is, do we use that as a tool or does it become our badge of survival or badge of self-worth, right? So for me, at some point, being intelligent was my badge of self-worth, right? That's how like my friends would tell me, oh, you're smart or you, know, you can explain things to us or whatever it is. And that became my badge of identity, even though I didn't actually fully realize it. Mm. You know, I just thought that it was really cool. I felt good when people said that. But I, I didn't fully, um, I didn't realize like how dependent I was on that until it was taken from me. After this kind of shift in experience that happened, the way the way that thinking happened changed. There was no like linear progression of thought. You know, like the thought would start somewhere mm -hmm. and build a couple bridges as needed and then disappear. Mm -hmm. And then if there was another situation that required thought, then a thought would appear somewhere and then build as many bridges as needed and then disappear. And, and that's tough when your mind is oriented to an educational system that is very linear, right? So for example, I would be reading emergency medicine, the textbook, and like, I would have to read a paragraph. I, I wouldn't even read the paragraph, to be honest. My, I would just say my eyes went over it. And it's like, it was a foreign language, you know, because it, it, it was such, it was such like a, a linear progression and the thought pattern was just of a certain nature. And that was just the freshness of the mind at that time. I had to kind of get used to a new way of thinking, a new way of seeing, a new way of walking, it seemed like. And so that took some time and it was for some time, it was just like, and if I don't have this, like, 
what am I or what can I do? Kind of had that what am I wasn't there, but it's more like, what can I do? How could I be effective in the world? You know, because that was my way of engaging. Mm -hmm. And what happened was actually, um, I remember I was on rounds once. This was my intern year. And some, you know, on rounds sometimes, depending on, depending on where it is and who your senior is, they kind of ask like the most difficult question, you know, to, to basically make sure that nobody gets it. Some people do, not everybody does this, but there's this culture in medicine of like, who is smarter, who will get the answer kind of thing, you know? So this guy asked, and this was like at, at the, at the peak of my ignorance, let's say, where I used to know all the answers to everything. And now it was as if like, I couldn't buy an answer, you know? So he asked this question and I just stood there and then I said the answer and it happened to be the right answer, which was, which I was like, oh, okay. And then he was like, oh my, how did you know that? That's so like his, his explicit, this guy's explicit point was to like say something that nobody would know. And then I realized that what had happened was like, I literally saw the answer coming into the mind mm -hmm. and it's almost like I read the answer. I didn't know the answer. I read it. Right. It was not, not that it was English or anything, but I could just, I could, I saw the answer basically. Mm -hmm. And then when that realization happened, I realized that everything I had ever known was actually that way. And I had never realized it. Wow. That I never actually knew anything. Uh, but things showed up as and when needed. Mm -hmm. And there's a tremendous amount of helplessness slash trust that comes in at that point. Because all the awards, all the accolades, you realize that it really wasn't you, you know? And so that was a tremendously humble, even now I feel so much gratitude for that moment. And uh, that in itself, something you might say is so simple, and that in itself maybe not as dramatic as some of the other changes in experience, but changed my life forever. Because that opens a person up to a kind of state of uncertainty and possibility that is indescribable. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I, so there's a couple of things that I'd love to ask you more about this, if you'd like to share. Um, you talk about this moment of awareness when you realized that your the way you know things wasn't exactly the way you thought you knew things. Um, do you suspect that what might have happened is because you had a certain configuration in your identity as the first mind? You did always know things that way, but you just couldn't perceive it. You perceived what you should have perceived. Yes. In fact, I would say this is the way anybody knows anything to get really out there. But yes, for me, um, it was exactly that. It had always been that way. I mean, it's kind of like talking about the second mind view from the first mind view is that it's not something like abstract or something that I guess from the first mind view, view I like to say it's hypothetical because I think that's how one has to approach it mm. with like real curiosity and being willing to throw out ideas, including one's own hypothesis. But from a second mind view, this is the nature of the world. And it's, it's, it's simply plain. And it doesn't really contradict anything. It, it's not right. Mm -hmm. It just is. 
and it accommodates every perspective, including the physicalist view is perfectly fine. The only thing that changes is we realize we had no idea what the word physical meant to begin with. Mm. Right? We have no idea what the word mind means either. So from that second mind view, it's like, oh, everything I had thought, everything I had known, it still, it, it still makes sense that that's the way I thought and that's the way I knew things. It doesn't reject any of it, but it just sees it like a hundred times more clearly and what it was and what was actually happening and the stuff behind it. And if we want to call it the mechanics and the process and all those things tend to kind of come into view more. Mm. So, and, and that includes everybody just doesn't include one person because that second mind view, what happens is that from the first mind view, there are, let's say 8 billion eyes, right? If we say I, 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 all of us have the name I, it's kind of a curious thing. No matter what language we're in, we all name ourselves. I, I do this. I do that. I do. Everybody says the same thing. Mm. And there are 8 billion eyes in terms of human beings on the planet, right? And from the second mind view, there's only one eye, right? Like there's one hand, but there are five fingers, mm -hmm. right? There's, there's one eye, and then there are eight billion eyes. And from the third mind view, there's no eye. There's no one. Because one only makes sense in relation to multiplicity. Otherwise, one has no meaning at all. You know, I had a very interesting um, experience at the time that we're recording this. Um, I I'd just been on an extended road trip where I had the chance to see a lot of friends that I met at various points in my life, and they, a lot of them don't know each other. Um, and I had a very odd experience that I haven't had before because it was so fast. I'm also a little bit of an introvert, so it took me out of my comfort zone. So I was seeing so many people in uh, such a short span of time. And at one point um, in the trip, I realized like I, I was talking to my friends, but it almost felt like every single time I met someone, I was kind of meeting the same person just in a different manifestation. Uh, so I guess the way my my brain put it, it was like, oh, it's just God in another skin suit, I guess, you know. <laughs> but it was it was really interesting. I felt it it tied to to what you shared um just now um with the palm and the fingers but yeah. it's all just the same palm so it's very difficult it might it might even sound silly in words but so much of this discussion i feel has to be experienced to be truly understood and what also struck me throughout the conversation is because we talk about the first mind the second mind the third mind but that's still a first mind view because it seeks to put them into boxes so yes. it's a first mind perspective on the lenses still. Yes. So what would the second mind perspective on that look like? It's interesting yes. to contemplate. Yeah. And, and from the second mind perspective, there is no such framework. Correct. The framework, <laughs> the framework lives at the transition between the first and the second mind. Mm. So what will happen in most cases is that the first mind view will be partially understood and it won't be fully understood because the full view of that, what we call the first mind, moves into that second mind. Mm -hmm. For example, to see that one's own identity is reflected as the world in terms of even the fundamental things of the world and not just, you know, interpretations or, you know, ideas about the world. So mm -hmm. that's kind of a second mind perspective to, to recognize if that is valid or not, right? From a first mind perspective, we can't really say. You just kind of, well, that sounds kind of out there. 
Um, I guess maybe it could be true in some, but like, really, I'm not really sure about that. It seems like there is like this objective world in that sense, right? So mm -hmm. it's designed to live at that boundary because it's supposed to be a communicative tool. I think the purpose of things is really important. And the purpose of the Three Minds framework is to communicate across different disciplines for those interested in this broader perspective. You said something that really intrigued me when sharing of experience of how you knew that answer in med school. Um, you said it flashed before your eyes and you just you just knew it. And you said, everyone knows things this way. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. I, I would go further and say I didn't I didn't know it. I read it. Mm. And like I didn't I didn't know it. I still don't know it. And in a way, in that sense, I, I don't know anything really. <laughs> it's it's like it's almost like reading. Um, it's like, it's almost like scenery, right? So if you're sitting in a car and you're driving and you see scenery come by and you're like, okay, there's a mountain and there's some trees and wow, look at that eagle and the oh, sky. Wow, it's an amazing sky. And that's like speaking. You know, I, I think that's what we all do. It's, it's, but when we're speaking from a certain sense of identity, from a first mind identity, it seems like it's all being generated by this individual mind. Mm. right because because the back is occluded like where that comes from is occluded it just seems to be starting here and, and it's coming out mm. but when the back opens up then it's like oh no actually it started somewhere else it didn't start here and it, it and at some point it's not starting in a particular place it's the expression of intelligence and mm. not a localized not an owned intelligence so to speak right mm. or it's an expression of interpretation however we want to creativity however however we want to say it and from the second mind perspective, this is simply the way the world is. So it's not special for one person or another person. It's not different in one person. What is different is the way that, that these loci of identity might interpret experience. Mm -hmm. And each of us is a locus of identity as individuals, right? And as individuals, we can interpret all kinds of stuff. And you can't really say, from a second mind perspective, none of it is false. From a first mind perspective, we can say this is true and that's wrong, mm. right? Because we have certain standards in society. We have standards of perception. We have standards of objectivity. We have standards of we have scientific standards. We have philosophical standards. We have family values. There are all kinds of standards. And those mm. standards decide what is true and not and what is good and not. Mm. Um, but there's a certain level of interpretation that we don't question, which is usually who we are, what are we, which is the exact same question as what is the world? What is the nature of the world? These are the exact same questions reflected on each other. Mm. And when that is questioned and the second mind view comes in, then it's not about right and wrong anymore. It's not about truth and untruth. It's not about real and imaginary. These are all like inventions of the first mind in, in order to kind of shield itself or protect itself in a particular worldview. Mm -hmm. Right. So at that point, it's, it's simply different perspectives. Okay. Seeing it this way. Okay. Seeing it this way. Now we can still say this is good because this is where we want to go. We don't want to go in the direction of hurting people. Mm. We want to go in the direction of helping people heal. Okay. So then this is the path forward. Right. So I think once you start to look at that, we can see that different individuals and their their interpretations of what, what is happening can be different based on their culture, the nature of their boundary, right? Culture mm -hmm. is a kind of boundary. Your family systems, your family beliefs are a kind of boundary or a kind of lens is another word for boundary, 
So these are different ways of refracting the intelligence of what's happening. But a less refracted experience would say, okay, these are different ways of experiencing, but that doesn't impinge on what's fundamentally happening prior to refraction, mm -hmm. which is this kind of, we can say this arising or this expression of intelligence non-locally and then interpreted as a local identity. So that's why, yes, I would say it's the case for everyone, not just everyone, everything. Like the way things appear, the reason you might see that thing in front of you, if you see a sofa in front of you, if you see something else in front of you, that too is the expression of intelligence. Even if you want to take the physicalist anatomist view, you go into that thing and you'll see dancing particles, mm. right? And who's to say there? there's no life, this is dead and that's alive, right? In, the, in this universe, there's no such thing as inanimation, though we talk about it. Everything is animate at some level. It depends on the fineness of our perception and understanding, right? So then where is life and where is non-life, mm -hmm. right? So even that thing, that apparently dead object, this kind of dissociated experience that's taught in our schools, even that also is arising in the same way thoughts are arising. And we interpret that based on localized identity often as ownership. So it, it comes back to what is being refracted. Is the third mind manifesting into form as the second mind, which is experienced individually by the first mind? Is that correct? Yes. There's a, yes. There's a kind of first mind transitional view of like the vista. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, Anup, there's a question that I love um, asking all guests on this podcast, um, which is, imagine that it's 50 years from now, and I want to ask you how you hope that healthcare will look like. I think first, if health revolution does its job, which we aim to do, we will know what health is to start with, because right now in healthcare, we don't, to put it very simply. Now, I'll share one story here, if I may. Um, also my intern year um, of emergency medicine training, um, a busy night, gunshots coming in, car accidents and life-threatening infections and all kinds of stuff. Um, and then a baby came in who wasn't breathing and we had to do resuscitation on this baby, resuscitate this baby, uh, everything flying around middle of the night. And at some point, I remember being in the corner of this room, this trauma bay, and just felt like the center, the eye of the hurricane. Everything's whirling around like crazy in the center. And it just came to me that we don't know what health is. We have no idea what health is. We are nowhere close to what health is. In terms of what we're teaching, how healthcare is operating. Not, I don't mean that as human beings. As human beings, we have an intimation. We have a sense. There, when we can get past the ideas and concepts, when there's a moment of quiet or a moment of connection with someone, we can feel what it might be. But as a system, as an educational process, we have no idea what health is. So number one, 
a few decades from now, this is what I see, that people start to know in, their, in the forefront of their experience, not in the recesses of their experience, I know what health is. And I can, I can articulate it in my own way. What it is, how I approach it, that it is something that is so fundamental that it is not different from me. It's not something I achieve. It's, it's what I am. It's the expression of my potential. You know, in their own words, that people feel this and can articulate this if they choose to. They may choose to never articulate it, which is just as beautiful. But that's number one, that we know experience and can say what health is. Number two, healthcare is no longer going to be a thing. It's no longer going to be that industry, that sector, that person, that hospital, because it's literally going to, going to be the care of health. And that is ubiquitous. And as soon as a person learns and experiences and begins to facilitate through their own practice what health is and what healing is, Health is the expression of our potential. Healing is the development of that potential, right? That when that cut heals, when that disintegrity heals and integrates, it is the development of our potential for unity. That's why it comes together. When the cardiomyopathy, if that cardiomyopathy improves, that, that dysfunction between the different chambers of the heart, when it starts to integrate better, that's because of that unity. It's a development of that unity potential. Right? When the mind that is terribly confused, when it, when it doesn't know what is real and what is not real, in large part due to miseducation and not having the systems around to be supportive, when that starts to heal, it's because the vision opens up and the depth of identity opens up and there's a unity and that potential develops, that's healing. So in all cases, healing is the development of human potential. And as a person understands and experiences what health is and what healing is, healthcare becomes what is happening everywhere. And that means there's a big power shift. There's going to, there's already underway, there's going to be a big power shift happening and a money shift away from centralized systems and the way it's happening right now, mm -hmm. um, away from uh, medication-based, away from doctor-based, or even just any expert provider base, it's going to be a range of health practitioners. Because as we understand what actually facilitates health, we're going to need a range of people to facilitate that. So there's going to be a shift in power. There's going to be a shift in money. It's going to be a shift in where healthcare happens and a shift in um, locality. And it's all going to be based in fundamentally a shift in our understanding of who we are and what we are. If you could be remembered for just one thing, what would that be? I don't particularly want to be remembered for anything. I would say that um, as long as I'm expressing myself and helping the people around me, that's enough. I love that answer. Um, if on the topic of one things, if our listeners remember just one thing from what you shared today, what should that be? You are powerful. You have tremendous power and you have tremendous intelligence. It doesn't matter 
what anybody has said. It doesn't matter what grades you've gotten. It doesn't matter what people think of you in this sense. Without a doubt, you are powerful, you're intelligent, you're perceptive, you're sensitive, you have great capacity. The more a person is willing to let go of certain beliefs through the process of investigating them, not by believing somebody else, not choosing one belief and letting go of another, but through the process of really investigating them, seeing if they hold up, seeing if they actually help in life, the more their power comes through. Anup, as for my last question, um, I'm sure that our listeners will want to learn more about you, about your work, about Health Revolution. What um, Where can our listeners find you and what are some links that you would point them to? Number one, healthrevolution.org slash jumpstart, because that is the programming we're offering now to help a person develop their own health expertise. And that's simply another way of saying developing your power, your insight, your intelligence. And it's a four-week course based on the four engines of nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. So please check that out. It starts March 6th, and it's a way to directly connect with what we're talking about. And it's kind of an entry. We talk about the four engines and that practice. And there's a, there's a let's say, a midpoint in that bridge that we call mind-body flow theory. We didn't talk about that. We can talk about maybe next time. But mind-body flow theory is kind of where it all starts to come together, where the four engines, you start to see that they're not really four. They're really converging into one engine. And that's mind-body flow theory. And that opens up into the three minds framework. So we don't directly discuss the three minds framework. In most cases, it's not necessary. If a person is deeply interested at that level, please do engage. Otherwise, the four engines is where everybody can engage. And we will also talk about mind-body flow theory in that course. That's the best place to find us, healthrevolution.org slash jumpstart. You can go to the main website, healthrevolution.org, and you can read about all kinds of stuff on health and healing and different perspectives. I'm trying to bring it all together in one place because I've written on a range of different topics. So we're working now on collating that and organizing that. Um, the other place is our YouTube channel. Um, Healing is Possible is our channel on YouTube where we share stories of people who, guess what, have healed from every condition that we say is incurable, right? The, the human system never read the textbook that told it what was possible and what was not possible. It's happening all the time. We don't talk about it. We need to talk about it more. So check out the Healing is Possible podcast on YouTube. Um, but healthrevolution.org slash jumpstart. That's where I would love to meet you. And thank you so much, Christina, for making this conversation possible. I want to thank you. And also to all of Christina's listeners, just to say how amazing the work she is, is doing. I, I, I thought so from the beginning. We actually, I actually had you on the podcast and we were talking and I was really impressed by her diligence and preparation and um, the thoughtfulness that you take. So I want to thank you also for doing this great work. Thank you so much, Anup. It was such an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show today. Um, 
to our listeners, head over to all the links um, under the episode description. Check out the Health Jumpstart program and all of Anouk's work. It is deep. It is extensive. You have a lot to dig into. Thank you so much again, Anouk.